Our first reading is Malachi chapter 4 and can be found on page 905 at the front of the church Bibles. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise, with healing in its wings. You shall go out, leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the Gospel reading, which is taken from Matthew 17, verses 10 to 12, and is on page 18. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. These verses are taken from the Transfiguration. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do take your seats. I know that you're live streaming this service, but I have so many, I've been so many places and I've got so many people spread around the country who ask me to live stream the sermon. So we're both live streaming, um, which, is, which is clever. Um, It's lovely to be uh, here with you um, and to be back, as has already been said, um, my name is is Harry, I am chaplain to the Bishop of Sheffield, the Bishop sends you his greetings, Um, typically he would be obviously doing his own thing on a Sunday morning, Um, he's actually got this morning off uh, because the two of us have got uh, ordinations this afternoon at Sheffield Cathedral, he has a bit more to do in that service um, than I do, so he's got the, the morning off. Um, many of you will, will know me because I used to worship here. Um, Zoe and I moved here in 2002, which seems a long time ago, um, and we, we worshipped here until 2006. And then in 2006, we moved to Cambridge. We had a three-month-old son when we moved. He's now 16 and still in bed. Um, and um, I did one year of ordination training at Cambridge at Ridley, And then 12 months after that, so just having done one year, we moved back here to complete the last part of my uh, ordination training on the job, so to speak. 
and, um, and then I serve my curacy here um, and have many fond memories of this place and the people here. Um, then after serving my curacy, we moved to a parish uh, not too far from here called Greenhill, and part of that parish was the Low Edges Estates as well. And then from there, having done five years, we went to Doncaster, to Wheatley and Wheatley Park Estates. Um, then from there, we served on the Wyburn Estates for a, a little while um, in the parish of Park. And particular highlights of that ministry included setting up a food share project that allowed us to not only help um, those in need within our parish, but by extension, many of the homeless people of Sheffield as well. And then from there, as well as working as the Associate Director of Leading Your Church into Growth, I also worked half-time for the Diocese of St. Albans. And because two half-time jobs weren't enough, I also had two parish churches that I was rector of on a house-for-duty basis. And those were two tiny villages in North Hertfordshire, about 15 miles south of Cambridge. And they were very, very affluent uh, villages, um, generally speaking. Um, it's, it, at that time, it's the only time I have lived in a four-bedroom detached rectory with a garage, and it's been the smallest and most unattractive house in the parish. Now... I'm not telling you all of this because I think you need to know my CV. I'm telling you because it sets, in part, a context for the sermon that I'm about to preach and lets you know a little bit of the variety of places that I've had the good fortune to live in and to minister in in recent times. Places of significant affluence like Ecclesaw and places of huge affluence like the chocolate box villages in North Hertfordshire. But also places where, for example, I um, shared with and journeyed with uh, an asylum seeker who during their journey of escape from their own country was routinely and repeatedly abused. They fled to the UK because they'd become a Christian, and in their own country that meant that their life was in danger. But in order to prove their faith in the court of law here, to prove that they were an authentic Christian, um, as they applied for their asylum status, they were asked to name all 12 apostles. And not being able to do so, their faith was doubted. And then the contrast in one of my more affluent parishes, um, I remember in particular the service to commemorate the death of his Royal Highness Prince Philip, and um, I was invited to allow one of the prisoners to speak. And I said, well, why, why should John be allowed to speak? And it was, oh, he was good friends with Prince Philip. So the contrasts in those places. I've seen something, a little bit of something of suffering and poverty, but I don't know what it's like to be a single parent. I don't know what it's like to be so poor that you're not sure how or when the next meal will come. I don't know what it's like to be so afraid that you leave your home, your country, your mother, a sibling, a degree in law to undertake a dangerous journey in which you endure the worst that could possibly happen to an individual, worse than death, to come to a place that's known as a Christian country only to find that your degree counts for nothing, your faith is unpicked by a solicitor who attends church at best once a year. 
I don't know what it's like to be trapped in a cycle of poverty, which means the only thing your father ever taught you was how to steal motorbikes. I don't know what it's like to go to sleep every night with your clothes on so that when your stepdad starts beating up your mum, you can sneak out of the house and spend the night with a friend, planning on what you're going to do when you're big enough to stand up to your stepdads. I really don't know what those things are like, although I've met people who have endured all of them. But I imagine that in those situations, you would be very keen for the day of the Lord to come. A day when all arrogance and evildoers will be burnt up, their fruits and their roots destroyed so much that there's not even the memory of them left. A day when you get to trample them underfoot. Now, I'm not saying it's right to want that to happen or good to want that to happen, but I understand why some people might want that to take place. I am at heart a pretty liberal person. I believe the best in most people. I think I believe the best in every person I've ever met. I hope that love will win. But this passage talks of the day of the Lord coming, a day that will have very different consequences depending on whether you fear the Lord or apparently fear nothing. So let's have a dig around in the text, find out what it's saying and what that might mean for us today. And it might be helpful to have your thumb um, in the reading from uh, Malachi 4. Let's just have a quick reminder of the context. I hope this tallies with the context that you've been told about so far. There is, you know, there's some questions about this. It's not entirely um, sure. But basically, the Israelites have returned from exile. Uh, the, the world politics at the time meant that the Persian Empire had risen to power and the Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonians who had, of course, conquered um, the Israelites. But now that the Persian Empire is ruling overall, their policy was to allow the exiles to return to work with those who had been left behind in Israel to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Because the Persians recognised that happy subjects, generally speaking, are more inclined to pay their taxes. Um, But that return from exile for the people of God was not the celebration and the joyous occasion that it should have been. Fallen humanity is still fallen humanity, whether they're living in a foreign land or not. And the people of God remained their stubborn selves. Furthermore, having wrestled with that massive theological question of the exile, the question of where is God when this happened to us, now they've returned from exile, they've got similar questions. Questions about, well, what do we do about the fact that our worship in the temple is state-funded by the Persians? Temple priests were, in effect, being bankrolled by the Persian Empire. And so some of the Israelites were no doubt asking questions of purity and purity and rightness of worship. But according to Malachi, for most, it had led to the possibility of milking the system, resulting in very corrupt temple worship. And in light of all this, Malachi warns of a future day. The day. The day for the evil and arrogance. For them, the day will be a burning oven. You can't put something into a hot oven and it come out being completely unaltered. Those who are evil and arrogant will learn that on the day. 
it's perhaps worth reminding ourselves again who the evil and arrogant might be. They're people who've wearied the Lord, according to Malachi 2.17. They're those who have been corrupt in relation to worship, Malachi 3.8-9. They're those who've been using harsh words, Malachi 3.13-15. They are all sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who deprive workers, oppressors of widows, and oppressors of the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourners in Malachi 3.5. So I began this sermon by talking about people who I knew or had encountered who would be eager for justice. And if we've lived a fairly sheltered life as I have, our desire for justice is perhaps not as personally felt. Of course, we can still desire justice. But what's important to say here is that uh, uh, as well as approaching uh, verse 1 of Malachi 4 with those in mind who we might know or might be able to imagine, who desire justice in their life. And that way we can understand this text. And certainly a way that we can begin to appreciate that hope for the day of the Lord. We need to think about the day of the Lord for the evil and arrogance and remember that this is a prophecy spoken to the people of God. This is the evil and arrogance who are in the community of God, the Israelites. There's no judgment mentioned here against the Persians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or anyone else. This is a judgment against those who should know better. And a second thing to remember about this day of judgment that's really important is that it's a future day that is yet to happen. One focus of prophecy in the Old Testament is to say to the people of God, this will happen if things don't change. And the reason for saying it is because it's hoped that things will change. I refer you to, for example, perhaps the best example is Jonah, who told the Ninevites what would happen to them if they didn't change their ways, and the Ninevites did change their ways, and Jonah got really, really annoyed. So although this is a prophecy of the day of the Lord, it's against the people of God, and it's explaining to them what will happen unless they change their ways. So it at least leaves open the possibility that they might change their ways. But what about those, the day for those who fear the name of the Lord? Those who fear the name of the Lord despite the corruption that's going on in the temple worship, despite the discouragement of the way that the return from exile happens, despite the disregard for the Lord that's going on around them amongst the people of God, those who fear the Lord are those who have remained faithful to God. And perhaps more than that, Their desire is for the justice of God. And perhaps more even than that, their desire is to be an agent of change to bring about God's justice. It's those who will experience the day of the Lord very differently. First of all, they're going to experience healing and wholeness. And this healing will be so refreshing and revigorating that we get one of these beautiful verses of the Old Testament's that they will be energised to the extent that they're going to pour the ground like well-fed calves um, in the stalls, just waiting to get out to the pastures to leap around. And in their delight, they will trample upon sin, upon wickedness and upon evil. And all of this will happen on the day of the Lord, a day that is yet to come. And so this prophecy 
reminds us that we are both Easter people and eschatological people. Now, eschatological is a long word for this early on a Sunday morning. It's really hard to say with a mouthful of cornflakes. Um, but our liturgy helps us out here because we will say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And we're reminded that we are shaped by the uh, past events of the death and the resurrection of Christ, but we are also shaped by an event that is yet to come. Christ will come again. We are an eschatological people. And that brings me to the final point of this sermon, you'll be pleased to hear, um, that before this spoken of day of the Lord comes, a new Elijah shall be sent, a prophet. And this verse about uh, 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 Elijah being sent to them reminds me of a lecture I once had at college that was given by a very um, charismatic Jewish scholar who was also a New Testament scholar. Uh, I can't remember his name, uh, but he was charismatic, believe me. Um, And at the end of this very encouraging, enlivening lecture, he invited his students to ask him any questions that we had about the Jewish faith. And someone asked him, what would you say to Jesus if he walked into this room right now? And this Jewish scholar replied by first asking if he could reframe the question uh, and said, can we ask instead, what would you say if the Messiah walked into the room right now? And having received the agreement of the student to reframe the question like that, he told us, he said, I would go up to the Messiah, I would do whatever I felt appropriately and dared to do, shake his hand, hug him, whatever, but get close and lean in close to his ear and whisper in his ear, Is this your first coming or your second coming? As Christians, we believe the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has already come. We believe that many years before that, there was a prophet called Elijah who didn't die but who was taken up into the clouds. We believe that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, did die but rose again and was then taken up to heaven. And we also believe that the Messiah will come again. And when this second coming happens, it will be the day of the Lord. And it's that hope that just because it's in the future doesn't mean we should say, oh, let's wait for that. It's that hope that shapes how we live our lives today. And really interesting that in in Malachi, the one uh, like Elijah who comes will turn the hearts of parents to the children and vice versa, which seems an odd place to start given that the issues that are presenting themselves are people who weary the Lord, people who've been corrupt in relation to worship, and people who are using harsh words, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who are um, depriving workers and oppressors of widows and the fatherless and thrusting sojourners aside. It seems odd to start with a parent-child relationship, but when a society is so utterly corrupt that even the most fundamental human relationship, that of a parent and a child, has become impacted, then you know there's an issue. And so to get to the heart of that issue, you go to the root of the problem. And so one like Elijah will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. But as we read that and reflect on that, we might like to think of the hearts of us as children being turned to God as our parents. And why not? 
So as we let the future hope of the return of Christ shape how we live our lives today, as we do all that we can to turn the hearts of others to God, because life with Jesus is a lot better than life without Jesus. And as we know that that work that we seek to undertake will be complete in Christ when he comes again, may we know that when Christ does come again, the land will not be struck with a curse. So Jesus, help us. Amen.